Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, I will be geeking out on tendons with Dr. Ebony Rio. Ebony is an Australian physiotherapist and tendon researcher based at Trobe University in Melbourne. Ebony is, of course, very well known globally for her work on lower limb tendon research. And as a clinician currently doing some research on tendons, it was an absolute privilege of mine to get the opportunity to speak to Ebony both on and off air about this topic. As you're about to hear in today's conversation, Ebony provides some real up-to-date clarity and clinical value on how to manage either an Achilles or a patella tendon injury. And she's excellent at making this topic very easy to follow. So you're in for a very informative, but also equally easy listening episode from her on this. We're really appreciating the positive feedback about the podcast. And if you're regularly tuning in, then hit subscribe if you haven't done so already, or leave us a review if you've got a second. In the meantime, you can also message us on Instagram or Twitter if you've got any guest suggestions or topics that you would personally like covered. You can simply find us at Inform Performance if you're using Instagram or Inform Pod if you're using Twitter. So without further ado, here is the conversation between myself and Dr. Ebony Rio. Good morning, Dr. Ebony Rio. It's a pleasure to speak to you and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very excited to have a chat with you this morning. So I'm slowly becoming a tendon nerd. And for the listeners that may be hearing you for the first time, um, could you just outline your background to them if they're not as familiar with you? Sure. Um, So I'm definitely a tendon nerd and I spend part of my time being a research nerd. So I'm a a senior postdoctoral research fellow at the La Trobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre that's based in uh, Melbourne, Australia. And I also still see patients because I, I love being a clinician and I think my research is better for it and I'm a better clinician for the research um, that I do as well. So I work at our Victorian Institute of Sports. I spend a great deal of my time dealing with athletes Um, and then I also run a small private practice clinic where I get to see um, lots of different people from, you know, completely sedentary right up to you know, recreationally active and so a nice spectrum of, of presentations. So I like the balance. So you're seeing everything rather than just getting a pipeline of tendon injuries? You bet. And in fact, we call, I've, I've changed the name of the clinic uh, to the Not Tendon Clinic. And that's because I spend so much time sifting through differential diagnoses. And I think differential diagnosis matters if it changes your treatment direction. And so that's something I'm really passionate about because I think I see in clinic um, people being treated uh, just with recipes. Um, And I think in research, we run the risk that there's also um, lots of different clinical phenotypes under a banner of of musculoskeletal injury like tendon pain. Do you think sometimes people um, kind of lose sight of allowing research to inform their practice? And do you think they almost go too far and they they try and replicate exactly what the research paper's done um, very specifically to their population? Yeah, geez, that's a great question. I, I think that can absolutely happen. And one of the things that I try and teach my students when I teach is um, I want you to be evidence-based, but that doesn't mean using recipes. And the reason for that is the person in front of you won't be exactly the same as the person in the research paper. They might um, have different comorbidities, different past injury of history, so they'll need a different program for their you know, their kinetic chain. And ultimately, their goals are different. You think of research 
research-based studies, they're often time-based. You know, it's a, it's a four-week intervention and we're measuring, you know, a particular outcome in a month's time, whereas your patient comes to see you until they're better. It's a goal-based um, it's a goal-based uh, kind of uh, time frame. And the reason why that's important is a lot of our research in tendinopathy looks at the earlier stages of intervention, so things like the strength training, the heavy slow resistance. But unless we actually recover the function, the kinetic chain and, you know, the spring behaviour of a tendon, we won't have success clinically. We can't go from just doing, you know, 12 weeks of heavy slow resistance and then returning people to 300 jumps in a volleyball you know, training match. It's just too big a jump for the tendon. So those sort of interim steps and the subtleties are what we have to deal with clinically. Um, so I'd encourage people to use the evidence, but I don't think you can ever treat with a recipe. Yeah. And, and universally, kind of the body is the body and uh, by, there's a lot of biomechanical overlap regardless of the injury. When, when you're kind of con- considering the kinetic chain for, say, let, let's say a patellar tendon, how do you um, pick the overlaps in science that are relevant? So, you know, can you look at an ACL paper and take something from that and apply it to a tendon paper? Or do you tend to stay in the biomechanics research that is housed with just tendons? No, that's a fantastic question. We have to actually read more broadly. Um, It's critical. And it's critical we let all of the other musculoskeletal and neurological research and strength training literature and all of that stuff, it has to all come together. And a lot of... um, the interventions that we do in in physio land don't necessarily um, probably have enough consideration of, of some of those principles. But but clinically, if you think about, uh, say, someone with patellar tendinopathy or patellofemoral pain or any anterior knee pain, it's actually the soleus that decelerates the tibia when they change direction. And so, if you have a really fantastic Um, capacity in your soleus, you'll unload the anterior knee. So it's really important that we do read broadly and and use what we know about biomechanics and and human function to inform our tendon-based rehab or any rehab. Just for the listeners who are kind of um, not from the uh, maybe the therapeutic background or they're not too familiar with tendon injuries, this is a bit of an impossible task. But can you kind of bring us up to where uh, the current thinking is with tendons and tendon pains in a in a nutshell? Oh wow! Okay, let me see how I go. <laughs> so I think. The most critical thing for me is what we call tendinopathy or how we diagnose it or what our patients describe, you know, whatever you want to call it, inclusion criteria for research. For me, they're all synonyms. That's the same thing. Who are we calling tendinopathy, right? And the critical thing is actually understanding tendon load and understanding rate of loading. So this is the most important. If you understand this, you understand who presents with tendon pain and you also understand all of the loads you'll need to modify initially, but critically what you'll need to add back in to return them to function. So if I can walk everyone through this, think like a tendon with me and I like to say for a few minutes or the rest of your life and I know if you're becoming a tendon nerd, this is how you'll think now. So if I'm a tendon... I can see four different types of load. So the first load is tensile load. That's where I store and release energy in my tendon like a spring. And it has to be fast for it to be high tensile load. 
So high tendon load, high tensile load, spring load, energy storage and release, I'm talking about all the same things. That's when I'm asking my tendon to store and release energy quickly and act like a spring. So for the Achilles, we're thinking of things like um, running and hopping. Um, but you can also then see why Achilles tendinopathy can be a disease of the lifespan because you need to use your Achilles like a spring if you run, but stepping off a curb or changing direction quickly also continues to use our Achilles tendon like a spring, which means even as we lose, um, as we become less active as we get older, you might have someone that isn't very physically active, but they're still asking their Achilles tendon to, to do that spring-like behaviour. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. So, but if you contrast that with the patella tendon, the people that use their patella tendon like a spring are this very, very talented, very small group of unique individuals that are elite young jumping men because they're the ones that can put the most amount of force through their patella tendon. And actually, Professor Dylan Morrissey said you have to have a perfect patellofemoral joint to be able to get patella tendinopathy, and I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it. It's like the patellofemoral joint will give out first. And so what we then need to think about is the implications of that. You can have patella tendon pain doing big jumping or really fast deep lunge change of direction like if you're um, changing direction at a tennis net and the reason why that's important is that means something like cycling is not high patella tendon load swimming is not high patella tendon load so if you have someone in front of you with anterior knee pain that are not doing these really high load fast high tendon load activities, you need to be thinking of a differential diagnosis because you, your treatment path is going to be different. So that's, that's our high tensile load. Now our second load is compression and that's where the tendon squashed against a bone. So for the Achilles, that's in dorsiflexion. Um, for the hamstring, that's in hip flexion. So it's, you know, body on leg or sitting down, that sort of thing. And the reason why that's important is it's a really nice load to be able to recognise and remove for people to help your pain. We want to think about how we can reduce some of the um, provoking loads, some of the provocative loads. Now, our third load is a combination load, and that's where we ask the tendon to store energy like a spring while it's in a position of compression. So that's the most provocative load or aggravating load for a tendon, but it's also what we need to return people back to. It, it isn't something we can shy away from, and it's also what our tendons are designed to do. So it's perfectly, um, you know, within, within our capacity to get back there. And then our fourth load is really important because it, it's actually a differential. It's actually a differential diagnosis. So that's when someone is doing an activity that's not high tendon load. So it's uh, repetitive. So they might be cycling where they're going into repeated plantar flexion and dorsiflexion. They might be swimming where they're kicking. So they're not using their tendon like a spring, but what they're doing is frictioning or shearing the outside layers, so the peritendon or the sheath around the tendon, they're sliding and gliding that repeatedly over um, the tendon. And that's important because it, it's a different pathology and it's a different provocative load. So if we consider then someone with um, Achilles pain, oh, Achilles region pain. So if you have a, an athlete that comes to 
to see you and they're reporting pain in that region. It's critical we sort out what their provocative load is because that's the load we need to remove to begin with. So if I get that wrong, if I have someone that has a peritendon irritation or a sheath irritation and I give them a calf raise, they'll do really badly because their provocative load is movement. Whereas if you have someone with Achilles tendinopathy, a calf raise is a fantastic first um, exercise to give them. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. Beautiful. Is it the kind of peritendon or the more friction-based um, pathology? With, say, the patella, would that be more likely to be irritating things like the fat pad? How does the kind of structures around the patella respond? Uh, you've mentioned the Achilles, but how does, does the patella have some similar kind of um, other pathology that can occur at the same time? Yeah, good question. So um, the Achilles can have there's a lot of things that can happen down behind the back of the ankle and some of them can coexist. With the patella tendon, um, we we tend to be a little bit more black and white, so rightly or wrongly, this is how we think about it. If someone is irritated in their patella tendon, it's with high load, high rate of loading exercises and therefore the converse of that is they're not aggravated by slow or static load. The fat pad certainly has changes associated with patella tendinopathy. We don't we don't know what they mean. That's been reported, but we don't exactly know what that means. And we all know that the fat pad can also be um, intimately involved with patellofemoral presentation. So how all the structures around it contribute is, you know, on a big long list of things that we don't really know. And I guess you can't, uh, there's no assessment that differentiates that very simply and, and you probably have to rely on trial and error of how they respond to your treatment to kind of further identify which of those things it could be at the knee. Yeah, so you, you get you get a lot from their history and this is true with any patient, as David Butler would say in, in pain science, you really need to meet them at their story. So for me, the loads that do and don't aggravate is just so rich with information. So if you have someone with anterior knee pain, you can really confirm your own bias, can't you? So you can say, in your mind, you can think it's tendon and you can say, does it hurt to um, jump? Yes. But patellofemoral joint pain can hurt to jump. Does it hurt to squat? Yes. But equally so can patellofemoral joint pain. So a lot of our questions in our clinical tests will actually aggravate both. The single leg decline squat is a great example. That will aggravate both conditions. So just asking people if they have pain on that test is not enough. But you can start to maybe tease it out a little bit with what doesn't aggravate them. So, for example, if you if you just run in a straight line, Andrew, that's not high load for your patella tendon. It's high load for your Achilles, but it's not high load for your patella tendon. So I always ask someone with knee pain if it hurts to run because it won't hurt your patella tendons, but it might hurt your patella femoral joint pain. So you're just starting to gather some information. Same with cycling. It won't hurt patella tendons to cycle because it's not high load. It's not energy storage in the patella tendon. So, um, but it might hurt your patellofemoral joint pain. Things like night pain. We don't see night pain in tendons aside from glute med because they lie on it with the compression. So anyone that has night pain, um, I'm, I'm instantly thinking of some other potential presentation. The key thing for me with tendon pain is that it's dose-dependent in pain as you go up in tendon load. So if we go back to the Achilles, 
if you get someone to do um, double leg calf raises up and down, we'd ask them, where's your pain and how much out of 10? We'd then go to single leg calf raises, where's your pain, how much out of 10? Double leg jumps, where's your pain, how much out of 10? Single leg hops and then single leg big hops. With someone with Achilles pain, what we see is a dose-dependent increase in their pain score as you as you add the rate of loading, and it remains really, really localised. So sometimes you read in research, oh, you know, we included people with pain two to seven centimetres above their Achilles. Well, that's a problem because that could be peritendon. So people have pain that's very localised in tendinopathy, but... Um, the two to seven centimetres is just because people have different length Achilles, but they still tend to pinch their mid-substance. But if I have someone with peritendon pain, they're highly provoked with the double leg calf raises and the single leg calf raises, but the jumps and the hops can be pain-free because they're not going through range. Does that make sense? Yeah, and is that because they increase the, the stiffness so there's not as much movement occurring? Spot on, yeah. spot on. So the movement load is what differentiates it. Now, again... You'll get that from their history. Just say they are a runner, and I see this all the time, and people go, oh, they run. That's um, energy storage load, and it is. But what I'm interested in is pain behaviour. So if someone with tendon pain, it's a hallmark feature that their pain warms up. So if I have someone with Achilles region pain and they say to me, it gets worse the longer I go, my antenna is up for it being the peritendon. And the reason for that is they might be able to control their range and how much movement there is at the start when they foot strike. But the longer they go, the more fatigue they get. As they contact the ground, they start going through big ranges of motion and really dropping their heel. And so the runner that says to you, I get worse the longer I go, for me, that's that's really important information about meeting someone at their story. And again, it matters because it changes our treatment approach. Peritendons hate isometrics and isotonics. It's one of the few times I will unload someone, I will aggressively unload someone with a peritendon problem because you get nowhere if you're moving them. And the isometrics really provoke them. And a couple of years ago, I thought, oh, you know, it'd be a safe load because it's static and you're not getting them to move. But it's like it squashes the peritendon or the substances and they just, they pull out. It's foul. They don't tolerate it at all. How do you kind of progress somebody out of that then? If you if you unload a peritendon, how do you then build them uh, back to their previous activity or the level they want to be at? Yeah, nice question. So the first thing is we should remember things like cross-education. So if you really strength train the other side and the other part of the kinetic chain, you can actually maintain some strength. And we're not talking about long periods of unloading. We're talking about a very short-term intervention. The other thing that we do is get them in a nice big high-heeled shoe, so even a guy just having a nice big chunky heel at the back, so a work boot or something like that, because then even when they're walking around, they're not going through as much range. If they are doing something like cycling or swimming, that would come out in the short term. And then we um, get them to talk to their doctor or their pharmacist, because I'm a physio, so I don't take anyone to take tell anyone to take any medication. But there are some topical um, combinations of creams that work really effectively. Um, But again, as I said, we we send people via a medical expert. 
Um, so we do a half Voltaren gel, half Hiridoi cream. So that's a heparin-based cream. Um, and there are some people that can't have these medications, so I can't stress strongly enough. Everyone shouldn't go out and buy this. You should seek professional help. Um, and then they, they apply this treatment um, overnight for a number of nights and it, it helps treat the um, the peritendon irritation. But the, the flip side of that is if you don't remove the provocative load while you're treating it, you um, really struggle. So the most important component is re- reduce movement. And then the second thing is some of these topical medications can um, kick it along a little bit. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, you probably get really fed up of answering this question, but I'm going to go there anyway. Um, where are we currently with um, isometrics and pain analgesia for uh, managing an acute tendon or a reactive tendon? Yeah, good question. So the the key thing for me is I, I, I revert back to probably three key things. The first thing is there are no gold standard criteria or agreed upon diagnoses for tendon pain. So I'm telling you what we do. We have rate of loading and pain during that high rate of loading as a, as a critical feature of tendon pain. Now, if you don't agree, if you think that squeezing the Achilles is a valid way of diagnosing it, or if you think I'm just going to get someone to hop and see if they have pain, then we may not necessarily be talking about the same group of people. So if you squeeze someone with peritendon pain and mid-portion tendon pain and stural nerve irritation, they're all going to hurt. But I'd manage those three things very differently. Equally, if you get someone with pain in that region just to hop, lots of things hurt when you hop. So I I think there's some challenges with us all looking at the same uh, group of people in research, and that really affects clinical translation. So the reason why I know Seth O'Neill and I don't necessarily think about diagnoses the same way is because in if you look at um, some of the discussion, um, you know, they were saying that, you know, some of the people that had pain didn't have pain till five kilometres into a run. And my clinical perspective is that's probably peritendon. So that's really important because if you get a group of people, so if you, okay, let's think of people like citrus fruit, okay? So if I get a whole lot of citrus fruit and I've got oranges and lemons and, you know, grapefruit and I don't know, is that even citrus? Anyway, <laughs> if, I, if I push on the skin, if I have my eyes closed and I just push on the skin and they all have about the same amount of pressure back, I could, I could say, well, they're all the same, right? So I can make an argument that they're all fruit I can make an argument they're all citrus fruit. But then if I put them all into a recipe, I can't possibly be grumpy that I haven't made lemon pie because I've included a whole heterogeneous group of people. So where I stand at the moment with isometrics is I think the bigger question is how do we diagnose people that go into tendon research and how are clinicians supposed to interpret the research? Um, because if we don't currently know whether or not there's a heterogeneous response to an intervention or if there's heterogeneity in who was included in the intervention. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that's a really big issue. The second thing for me is I think it's really worth remembering, and I've reflected a lot on this, I think it's worth remembering what pain is. 
So pain is a feeling. We experience pain when our brain weighs up that the threat or the risk of um, damage is greater than, than kind of the reassurance of safety. So our brain has this constant evaluation and it uses all the information at hand. It uses memory. It uses information from the, the body. It uses vision. It incorporates all of that, right? So if someone comes into a research study and they have pain, at the end of that, if they have more pain or less pain, I think we need to examine all of the contributors to that. So in the past, I've I've really tried to control for that and have a script, have blinding, have a comparator, all of those sort of things. Because if you get a case series, if you get nine people that come into your clinic that have pain and they leave better or worse – there's so many factors. They might not like you. They might not have been able to find a park. They might, they, there's so many reasons. And so it's too simplistic to put it down to one thing. Once we start to have some, um, some of those other sort of research stop gaps in, you can start to then consider more of whether or not it was specifically the intervention but it's like if someone comes into your clinic and they leave better or worse, that's pretty multifactorial, don't you agree? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, the patient comes in, they like you, they believe in the treatments you're doing. Um, you may not have actually done clinically the best thing, but you might still have got a, a productive result for them um, for whatever reason it could be. Agree. And so I think and I think we underappreciate that in research, that, that that's a thing. And so we should be designing our studies to control for that or to have that consistent across our groups, which is why um, having two groups is always better than one group, um, then you can start to sort of tease out some of that. But but it's really important. And I've, I've totally underappreciated that um, in the past. So to answer your question, where do we sit with isometrics? The way we define tendon pain is so intimately linked with rate of loading that it becomes a circular argument because we would call people that are not aggravated by static or slow load, that's a critical feature of tendinopathy. So if I have someone that is aggravated by that sort of load, I'm not thinking they have tendon pain because I think tendon pain is associated with storing energy in your tendon. So do you see we end up just back at the same point? Yeah. But if people don't think like that, if people are poking tendons or just doing a hop and saying, do you have pain? Yes, no. Do you see how you can include a really heterogeneous group? Well, what we would call heterogeneous, but, you know, the point is we don't agree. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm saying there's not, um, there's not consensus. Yeah, it sounds kind of inconsistent how it's being grouped and, uh, and kind of appraised. Highly inconsistent. And so I think we all need to then be more considerate, actually, and more considered and just more open. Because if there's gold standard criteria and we're including the same people and these heterogeneous results, fantastic. 
let's actually, let's look at that. That's interesting. And who might something be appropriate for and who isn't it appropriate for? And let's target treatment. But if we're not all calling tendon pain the same thing, it's actually ridiculous to look at each other's research and go, that doesn't work, mine does, or vice versa. I, I actually think that's really not considered. I think we need to be much more reflective as a group and have much more open conversations like this. I I think this is fantastic. This is what it should be like. Why did that group find something different? Is it ineffective for Achilles? Well, you could certainly hypothesise that from the research that's out there at the moment. So it's important to hypothesise and and investigate this stuff. Um, You know, and the very first study we did was really small, it was a crossover study. It was really tightly controlled. But I was really interested from then whether or not, like, what happens in the real world, because that's not the real world, right, like people coming into my lab. So then we took it out into a four-week um, randomised clinical trial, and this is um, Matthias Van Ark. He's the lead author. And what we saw is that over four weeks, there was no difference between isometrics and isotonics. Fantastic. As a clinician, I have two interventions that I can use in season. For me, I was so excited about that because prior to that, the only other exercise intervention that had been tested in season was eccentrics. And it was found that they provoked people in season. It was just too much on top of their training loads. So athletes that we were seeing were being pulled out of gym to sort of – you know, freshen them up. And then, you know, this study showed actually they're better for it. They should stay in there and and still be doing these loads because they're not provocative for tendons. So, you know, I was really excited to see two clinical options because it is about giving people clinical options right back to what you said at the start around um, recipes. Goodness, no. It should be about having all of the available um treatments and exercises in your toolbox and then being able to make good clinical decisions about when to use them and when to not use them and and critically looking at things about a study like do they define tendon pain the same way I do when did they apply this you know we can't take the eccentric program which had good efficacy in you know mid-portion Achilles and apply it to in-season athletes because we don't see the same results. So does that mean we throw out that as an intervention? No. We'd be more considered about when to apply it. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought uh, kind of along that lines, you know, you don't, mid-season, you, you know, you, and you're in between games, you don't want to necessarily expose an athlete to eccentrics, which you know are going to be heavy and elsewhere in the system in their muscles going to cause, you know, quite severe soreness and they're also going to be quite neurally drained from doing it. Yes. Perhaps the heavy slow training can be used as a pre-season tool you know go through the kind of kongs guard protocol as a injury not preventative because i don't think you can truly do that but i think that's a great point yep an injury risk mitigation tool um, for your athletes who could develop patella tendon injuries or achilles tendon injuries because of their activity Um, chuck it in early when you've got time ahead of uh, competition to to maybe try and get some increased cross-sectional area and just bulk up and strengthen that system Love it. And so, for example, I think the heavy slow resistance stuff is brilliant. But again, if I reflect clinically and think about being evidence-based but not recipe-driven, I actually do heavy slow resistance but on single leg. 
So the program was double leg and I think the program's outstanding. But in terms of how I employ that clinically, because the athletes that I see do everything on one leg at a time. And so if you have a past history of injury or some sort of asymmetry, double leg won't um, ever correct it. So I, I, I love the research that's been done. I think everything that's done helps me um, – get better clinically and in research. So, you know, Seth's study helped me really reflect on, well, why don't I do seated and why don't I do it in plantar flexion? And, you know, go back to the research and say, well, actually you generate much more force in dorsiflexion. And when there's also some research to show when you're when you're sitting, you can use a lot of other um, a lot of other muscles to generate that force in that set up you know you can use your hip flexors and again you can really the sneaky tendon can hide so it gives us a lot of opportunity to reflect and work out you know as I said nothing works for everyone so I'm really passionate about helping give clinical options but also helping people with as much information as possible as to how they how and when they might choose to use that. Have you got any kind of techniques or strategies that you've used or, or maybe seen in practice that you've noticed are effective for helping to manage tendons, but perhaps where the research hasn't caught up or the research isn't agreeing yet? Yeah, I think I think I've underestimated in the past the absolute value of education. So Jill Cook and Craig Purdom, I've learned so much from them and they spend a lot of time, and I do now as well, a lot of time talking to someone and really, um, well, first listening to someone and second of all, helping them specifically with the the parts of their story that they need. And so it's not generic. It, it wouldn't be something you could just give people a handout, but it might be something like someone comes in and says, I've got, you know, patella tendonitis. And unless you actually deal with their their basic understanding of what's going on, you're really going to struggle with adherence. So if someone thinks something's inflamed, good luck getting them on board with an exercise program. So even though it's just one word, it has these underpinnings of what it means to that person. Same with their imaging. You know, they might bring in their ultrasound and it says, oh, increase in AP diameter, and they're freaking out because they don't know what that means and they've Googled it. Unless you actually reassure them about, you know, fantastic increase in AP diameter, that actually really reassures us that your tendon's adapted and that we have plenty of tendon tissue and now we've just got to get the load right for the tendon, the muscle, you know, the kinetic chain, sort out the brain. And this whole education that is so individual would almost be impossible to research. We're having a go at it. But do you understand that each person's story is a bit different? And so doing something blanketly might hit on some of these points for some people. Um, so that's probably the, the area that I feel really strongly about is language and education. And I just think it's so important for reassuring people. And, you know, I teach people what is high tendon load. I teach them about spring. So I reassure them that doing slow and static load, doing the gym program I'm giving them is really safe for their tendon. And I wouldn't underestimate the importance of that either. And I guess like what you said earlier about kind of not going down recipe books, I guess if you stick to the recipe book, 
you might fix a lot of tendons just by the law of averages, but you won't fix all of them when you need that uh, individualist N equals one approach to an athlete or, or patient. I agree. And this is what's really difficult about research. We need research. We need um, good design. We need good numbers. We need all of those things. It's really, really important. Um, but the clinicians that you talk to and the really good ones that do the N equals one 18 times a day understand the subtleties in differential diagnosis, individual education, individual exercise prescription. You know, I've been thinking about how you could try and look at, you know, graded progressive load. So what we do clinically, and it's really hard because researchers would hate it because everyone in the study would progress at a different rate, you know, that have different exercises, you know, it'd be such a It'd be an absolute dog's breakfast, but, you know, my clinical practice is a dog's breakfast, but I love it because it's problem solving and working all that stuff out. And what I try and do with research is make it as tight as possible and answer questions, but knowing that you you can't answer everything. Yeah. And I guess it uh, kind of indicates the need for more high quality case studies. You know, people tend to not always uh, want to go down the case study route, but actually when it's an N equals one sort of situation like this, there's a lot of value in it if they're communicated well. You can certainly learn a lot and, you know, you'd be the same. And this is why I still see patients because you just learn so much. Like you just realize, oh, I, I should have done this differently or, you know, this is how I'd do it differently next time. So every single time we see a person, so whether or not you see one person or do a massive research study, we all walk away a little bit wiser, I think. Yeah. Out of curiosity, how how long do you leave a potentially grumbling unresolved tendon if you're having no success with it conservatively? How long do you leave it until you maybe um, consider less conservative options and maybe discussions with um, orthopedics? Yeah, that's another good question. So I thought you were going to say, how long do I leave them on isometrics? And I, I want to deal with this. Um, not long. If you are using it, it's a way in, please move on. And do I always start with them? Of course not. So I've got a, you know, a guy at the moment who wants to run an ultra marathon. It's 160 kilometers. That's a really long way. I don't have time for isometrics. You're straight into isotonics. By the way, I diagnose tendinopathy. That's a safe load. Let's get going on strength, strength endurance, et cetera. In terms of how long I'd leave them on a conservative exercise program, it's a great question. The, the people that I see have tried all of the invasive stuff. So I see all the people that have had, you know, 18 PRPs into each patella tendon, and that's true. I've seen that. Um, all, you know, they've tried high volume, they've tried shockwave. So I come from a clinical um, bias where that stuff has failed. And I know that everyone has their own um, perspective on that. So does that work for everybody? No. Does it work for some people? I would argue, of course, it does. So I think everything has a role. I just hate when things are applied blanketly. Um it depends on so many things, Andrew. If you've got a, you know, if they are an athlete, and I know we're, we're talking mainly about athletes, well, you could probably consider um, something like Hock and Alfredson's uh, scraping technique where you're doing, you basically denovate the tendon. Um, so I've seen that used in patella and Achilles with good success. I've also seen, you know, the, the superficial bursa down around the calcaneus be removed on occasion. So I don't have a hard and fast rule of how long because um, it might depend on, you know, what else they've got coming up, 
what they've tried before. Yeah, sorry, that's a terrible answer. No, I guess it's hard, isn't it? Because it has to be quite a complicated case by case example as to when you might consider any kind of surgical or um, or invasive procedure. And just bearing in mind, if you do have a technique that changes the nociceptive driver or removes it, if you denervate the tendon and they have no pain, they certainly have the capacity to overload because they actually don't have that feedback. So we listen to our tendons 24 hours after a load. Um, that's how the tendon tells us if they're happy. Um, so if I had a grumbly tendon where they had low and stable pain, I'd just keep pushing and I'd use part of my education to reassure them that low and stable pain with increasing load is a win. Your tendon's actually happy and it's adapting. Yes, with like zero pain, that might take us a long time to get. If you've got increasing pain with increasing load, you've got your load wrong. So a lot is around education. And um, but I'd I'd be quite conservative on someone that had no feedback from you know from the from the area. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. I guess the the timing's kind of perfect. We've actually a study that's just come out. There's there's obviously been a little bit of uh, talk recently, especially on Twitter, about using um, blood flow restriction training for tendons. Have you kind of used BFR before in your practice, or have you have you kind of come across this research recently? Yeah, good question. So I heard a blood flow restriction presentation at the Barca Tenon Conference last year, and they basically concluded that they didn't actually think there was a role for it. And he went through the role for the muscle and, and all of those different features. So I'm so interested to see where this goes. We um, we do refer to people that use BFR, particularly for patellofemoral pain. So the reason for that is... Um, my understanding of the BFR research is that if you can load heavy, you should. That's where you get the strength gains. And that BFR, and I had this conversation with a clinician this morning, BFR might offer us something where we can't load heavy. So if I have someone with anterior knee pain and they can't do a heavy leg extension, my antenna is immediately up that it's patellofemoral joint pain. BFR gives us a great option to not put a lot of load through the joint but make the muscle work really hard. But if someone with patellar tendinopathy, heavy leg extension won't hurt because it's not fast. So again, it comes back a little bit to how we diagnose it. But might it give us a clinical option? Absolutely. I, I look forward to seeing where the research goes. As I said, I'm all about giving people tools. And um, yeah, I, I think it's exciting. Yeah, I wonder if it could be one of those things that allows you to ease the more complex patients into loading. If you really can't... Could easily be, Andrew, yep. If you really can't get that patient to uh, comfortably or, or willingly load in those early stages where they've got pain. They might have fear. Yep, yep, yep. No, that that's exactly right. There, there could be lots of different um, reasons why you might do that. And so, for example, again... If you go to um, like the individual person, if they're really fearful about load, okay, where, where are you going to start? And it may not be your best, you know, strength and conditioning ultimate exercise prescription day one, but what's your way in? You know, where are you going to start that actually empowers that person with some confidence and some self-efficacy? And if BFR might be a tool for that person, or it might be that you start with something just really low load, but super safe just to get buy-in so that they're not provoked and you can, you know, you can get somewhere. And this is where things like 
you know, why does tape help, you know, patellofemoral pain? Well, probably not because it, you know, holds the kneecap where it is. It's it's probably, you know, confidence and sensory feedback and all of those things. And this might be similar. Um, is there anything you're kind of looking at um, in tangent to, power, uh, to tendon research to kind of guide where you go with future projects? Where do you kind of look to inspire your thinking? I I love the pain science and I love neuroscience and I love the brain and I think and I just love how complex humans are. So the research I'm doing at the moment, I've got a few studies going, but one of them is using virtual reality. So we've designed a game for people with knee pain where they'll play a game in VR. But the whole point, or for me, one of the things that's really important is we don't want to just distract people from their pain for the 15 minutes they've got the headset on. If we want some translation into real world function, then we have to be thoughtful about the features of um, of, uh, of of what they do. So we might say, right, this is the therapeutic load. This would be an exercise session I would prescribe to you in the real world in terms of time under tension and just, you know, attention to detail about what people are doing. But if I get you to do that in VR, then perhaps it gives us an opportunity for you to be engaged because exercises that physios give can be very boring. So you might be more interested. If we distract you or change um, your pain, you might be able to load a little bit more than, you know, in the real world. So can we use some of these techniques as a way in, as you said before, for the complex patient, to the person that we're just not able to get going with our standard you know, go to the gym and do these six exercises. Not everyone wants to go to the gym. So I'm doing some stuff in VR, which I'm excited about. And I've got a couple of tendon projects going, which I'm pretty chuffed about as well. Still in the still in the lower limb or are you venturing to upper limb as well? Or Oh, no, I don't think I'll venture to the upper limb. I think <laughs> I'll stay in the lower limb. We had a um, student do a great study on the elbow, which we're going to publish this year. Um, and, but no, I think, I think I'll stay level in for now. Well, I mean, like, I think that there's uh, tendon research teams to change quite quickly and uh, frequently. So I guess you can stay very busy um, <laughs> in that, in that, in that space. But can I, can I leave everyone listening with one thing? Of course. When, when you're reading a study, don't just read the heading or the abstract, which says, you know, patellar tendon or Achilles tendon. Be brave and read all the way through, not just the methods of how they diagnose, but go right through to the results table and really see whether or not you think that's a population who um, gets that condition. So there's a lot of research in patellar tendinopathy where, you know, they include cyclists and swimmers and sedentary people, and I'd make a strong argument that those people don't use their patellar tendon in a high rate of loading. And so I think that really... Um, makes it interesting in terms of our clinical translation. I think we can't expect to reproduce research or have clinical translation until we're much more considerate around that stuff. So, yet yeah, be evidence-based but not recipe-driven. I mean, the example you gave then, that must, in, that must skew the, uh, the potential for the intervention to do well so much if you've got people who aren't going to respond like a tendon injury then not responding like a tendon injury because they potentially don't have one. 
Spot on. So then we don't know whether or not the intervention is ineffective for tendinopathy or if the intervention gives a heterogeneous result or if the issue is in the heterogeneity of who's included. And we can't separate those two things currently, which is sort of what I was saying before about we just all need to be much more considered around discussing each other's research. And that's why, you know, I'm so happy to chat about all the isometric research out there because we should be chatting about, you know, what what has been shown to be effective and what's been shown not to be effective. So there's a study in um, the patella tendon where they found isometrics, I think, were heterogeneous or when effective. I can't remember exactly what they found, but I skipped straight through to who was in it. Well, nearly half their cohort were women and only, I think, one of them did a jumping sport. So I'm instantly thinking, okay, you have a lot of people with anterior knee pain, anterior knee pain, and you had a heterogeneous result. I, I, I respect your results. I wouldn't call them tendon, but who's to say I'm right? I, I think tendinopathy is a subgroup with a unique set of clinical features. Um, but again, because we have no gold standard, we can't use imaging. We can't use you know any of these things to confirm it. We're sort of left in no man's land unless we can have a. I think a, at the very least a consensus on how much information to put in your studies, that's all I'm after. Just put enough detail in your studies so that I can look at it and decide whether or not I think it's similar to the person in front of me. Yeah, I think that's a really valuable point you've made there. Well, all very valuable points that you've made there. Um, I think we're on the clock there. Is that, are, you, are you active on social media? Um, can people follow you online well, easily? I'm not on Twitter anymore. I haven't been on Twitter for years. Um, so... But I don't even know my password to log on and cancel my account. So I s- apologies if anyone is contacting me via Twitter. I was almost thinking I might jump on Instagram. Is that what the cool kids are doing? Oh, well, I think so, yeah. I mean, I think TikTok's the new one, but I, I mean, I'm, <laughs> oh, I've it? not oh, caught gosh. up with that one myself yet. See, I'm a whole platform behind. <laughs> if any, in all honesty, and I'm very old school. If anyone ever has a question about research or a patient, I'll reply to every email um, always. Um but, yeah, I, I'm thinking I might have to get back on some sort of social media thing, but I'm not, at, I'm not at the moment. Sorry. Well, I think we're on the clock, but, Ebony, thank you so much for your time. Um, I've definitely learned a great deal, and, um, yeah, I really appreciate the insights you've given us today. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'd like to thank Dr. Ebony Rio for coming on today's show and providing a clear and highly usable update on lower extremity tendon management. On next week's show, I have the pleasure of speaking to PT and performance specialist Mike Reinald. So don't forget to subscribe to ensure that you don't miss that one. Hope you enjoyed today's episode and thanks for listening to the Informed Performance Podcast.